Hey everybody, welcome to episode 264 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from a beautiful day in Austin, Texas. Hope everybody's having a great week. I know for me, for one, I'm enjoying my week of watching the Winter Olympics every night with my kids, which has been a blast. Wanted to actually talk about some of the inspirational things I've seen there this week in my intro, but before that, wanted to quickly let you know what we'll be talking about today which is that we are going to be talking about the do's and don'ts of running technology. The do's and don'ts of running technology. I was having a conversation this week with one of my training partners who actually works for a wearable tech company. I won't mention the name, but she was just saying how it's interesting how oftentimes their customers put too much weight and power in the data instead of just treating it as a tool, as a supplement to the information that they are also getting by just listening to their body. And so we were talking about that on a run this week, which prompted some of the things I'll be talking about today. But I want to talk about how can we use our running technology as an additive, helpful, supplemental tool versus letting it become something that can actually be perhaps counterproductive or even destructive to our training. So we're going to be talking about the do's and don'ts of running tech. And I've got five each, five do's, five don'ts. We're going to be alternating through those because many of them are kind of paired in terms of being one side uh, or the other of of the same coin. So we'll get to that in just a second. But first of all, yes, I've been absolutely obsessed with the Winter Olympics this week. It's been so fun to watch some of the stories, and I just wanted to highlight a couple of them that have been particularly inspirational for me because I think they're just relatable, and there's so much to draw from these amazing athletes. One, got to give a shout out to Jesse Diggins, who earned the first ever U.S. medal in the women's sprint cross-country skiing event when she earned bronze this week. And she's an athlete that I think is just an amazing person and obviously an amazing skier. I've had the opportunity to interview her for the Clean Sport Collective podcast and just walked away just really, really impressed with her just as a human. And of course, she's impressive as an athlete as well. So it's been fun watching her this week, and I think she's still got more to go. But the thing that impressed me most about her this week among many things is the fact that in her post-race interviews after winning that bronze medal she was very quick to give credit to her teammates to her coaches to the staff on the u.s ski team and also to the alumni that have come before her in cross-country skiing in the united states and and including in one of her interviews she actually knew the number she said there was there's been 53 women who have come before her on the U.S. cross-country ski team. And it's just so impressive to me that she knows that number, that she understands the history, and she also understands the impact and power of those athletes on her own career and trajectory. And I think it's rare to see an athlete who performs at such a high level be so selfless in their recognition of others. And I think it's particularly cool and powerful that she was giving a shout out to those that have come before her and that she even knew that number of U.S. women that have come before her. So pretty cool. Awesome to watch Jessie race. She's got more to come, including some team cross-country events, which she won 
a medal for that in the last Olympics. So it'll be fun to see what she's got left at these games. Then also got to give a shout out to Michaela Schifrin, who obviously competes in the downhill ski and slalom and super G and giant slalom events. She has had a rough start to her Olympics. As many of you know, skiing out of the gates in both the giant slalom and the slalom, two of her best events before coming back to finish ninth in the super G. And I believe she still has the combined event coming up, but it was heartbreaking to watch somebody who has been really the best in the game in women's downhill and slalom skiing for a long time. It was hard to watch her see and face failure in that way. And in particular, many of you, many of you have probably seen the picture of her after she skied out of the slalom gates and off that course pretty quickly, just taking off her skis, sitting on the side of the slope and just trying to absorb and reflect what had just happened. And, and then of course she was still brave and facing the media and all of the attention that comes with somebody who is expected to win. And when they don't, oftentimes that gets attention. And so she faced all of that, did all of the conversations and, and faced the media, went back to work, had some practice sessions and then came back. And even though she didn't get on the podium with the super G, she completed the course faced her failure from the prior events and got ninth and and was seemed seemed to be just relieved and happy with that and you know and i often talk about how we have to celebrate everybody even those who don't end up on the podium and i think that result for her even outside of the medals was one of the bravest most courageous results i've seen in a long time and and so shout out to Michaela Schifrin for for continuing to show up even in the face of failure and just continue to move forward. I mean, that's all you can do. And there's so much to be learned from that. We've all had those moments where we felt like a complete failure. Or we felt like all the work we'd put in to get something big just didn't manifest in the way that we hoped. And in those moments, you got to sit just like she did on the side of the slopes in those feelings. You got to process it. You got to let all those feelings come and come through you. And then you get back up and you go to practice again. You do the work and you show up again and you keep moving forward. That's all you can do. And so she was a perfect example of that. And I think it's, it's cool to see someone like that have impact outside of the medals. And that's the way it should be because all of the athletes or inspirations, but the way we watch sports, especially in the U.S., we don't often recognize that. And so, wanted to give a special shout out to Michaela Schifrin for her inspiration this week in facing failure, continuing to show up, and to do it with absolute grace and class along the way. So, best of luck to her too in the upcoming events that she has on her slate. Should she choose to ski them. But so much great stuff to Nathan Chan watching him win gold in, in figure skating and then Sean White getting fourth in his last Olympics and what also I believe was a brave performance going up against those young bucks in the snowboard half pipe. So, so much there. Could talk about that. Probably a whole episode, but I know you came for the running, not for the Winter Olympics. 
talk. So we'll jump right into my conversation quickly, though, before we get there. Just wanted to give a shout out to Kerov. They're my partner for this episode. We'll be sponsoring this episode, and I'll talk more about my partnership with them mid-episode. So let's jump into my main topic here today. We're talking about running technology, the do's and don'ts. So when I talk about running technology, I'm talking about your Garmin. I'm talking about your perhaps your heart rate monitor. I'm talking about some of the wearables that might track your information, like the Aura Ring or the Whoop Band. And I've used all of them in one form or fashion, and they can be great tools. But it's important to note that they are just that. They are tools, and they are flawed tools at that. And so we have to make sure that we use them in context and that we don't let the tail wag the dog, so to speak, in let in letting our watch or our wearable dictate too much. We still have to take ownership ourselves of how we feel and make good decisions ourselves based on how to move forward, whether it be in a workout, in a training cycle, and not let our watch or our wearable technology overly dictate what we're doing. So we're going to talk about the do's and don'ts there. And as we step into this conversation, I just wanted to first, perhaps dating myself, just acknowledge how far we've come on this dimension. When I first started running in the early 2000s, you know, I had a Timex Ironman watch, which was basically just a wristwatch with a stopwatch feature where you could lap the laps and that would be your way of tracking workouts. And so you would be on the track or you found measured loops and you would use that lap indicator to tell you how much time you'd gone for that loop. And then that would be your judge of pace. And that's just the way it worked. And I operated that way for a long time. There were no GPS devices when I started in the sport. In fact, I mean, cell phones were pretty new at that time as well, at least in terms of being available to everyone. And so we've come a long way. I remember I actually had one of the first wearable GPS devices, which was actually a Timex version. It came with a big pod that you wore actually on an armband on your arm, on your shoulder. And it also had a watch feature, but between the two things, it would calibrate and calculate your your pace and distance and things like that. And I hated it, actually. It was something that I was overly obsessed with initially, but then quickly discarded because it was cumbersome. The pod that you wore on your shoulder was heavy and annoying, and so I discarded it pretty quickly and then didn't go back to a GPS technology device probably until about 2011, 2012. So I had a big gap, even though Garmin at that point entered the market, came out with their almost candy bar size watches that you would wear on your wrist. I resisted that. And I resisted getting a Garmin until it was actually sized more like a basic wristwatch. But we've come a long way from the basic Timex Ironman watch that would just split your laps. And by the way, I remember at, at one time that it was just cool and seen as a big improvement when they actually added laps to the watch so that I could track 26 plus laps so that if I was doing a marathon and I was splitting my watch every mile, that I could actually go back and look after the race and see what I had run for every single mile. 
by manually splitting those laps at each mile marker. So just increasing that lap number at one time was a big technological advancement. And then obviously GPS came and those devices evolved from big clunky, cumbersome things to now what we have, which is basically a wristwatch on your wrist that looks like a normal watch and operates and does all the things from tracking pace and distance, tracking heart rate, to tracking steps, to perhaps telling you where you are and what you might need from a recovery standpoint. So there's just so much advancement we've seen over the last 20 years in terms of technology. And sometimes I have to ask myself, are we better for it? Are we better for it? And the net answer is, I think so. I think yes. I think it's information is a good thing. Knowledge is power. But there are pitfalls, and I think oftentimes athletes step into those pitfalls, and then perhaps the use of technology becomes the driving force instead of just the supplementary tool, and that can lead to counter be- counterproductive behavior, counterproductive activity, and perhaps ultimately destructive activity if you're letting your watch dictate too much what's going on in your workouts and in your training. So we're going to dive in here, talk about 10 total, five each, do's and don'ts for running technology and see where we end up with that. And I'll be curious to get feedback on this episode. And and so feel free to, of course, to send me an email if you have thoughts on it, chris at roguerunning.com. So we're going to start with the do's. We're going to alternate these. So do's and don'ts. I've got five each. So we'll, we'll go back and forth. My first do is is that I want you to understand, do understand the limitations of what you're wearing, of the technology. We have to know and remind ourselves that these tools are fundamentally flawed. They're fundamentally flawed. They're doing their best to be as accurate as possible, and that accuracy has improved significantly over time but they're still wrong. They're still wrong. And it might only be a percentage point wrong, but they're still wrong. And that can be enough to sometimes make a difference. And, you know, if you, if you need evidence or doubt that, then simply go on a run with friends, all wearing GPS watches and tell me when you hit mile marker two. And whether or not you all hit mile marker two at the same time or mile marker eight, or oftentimes I see this when we do our long runs where we, where we're trying to get to our turnaround point for perhaps an 18 mile run. And we're 8.75 miles in on my watch, but somebody else's beeps at nine and somebody else's beeps a little bit later at nine. And then mine takes a little longer to beep at nine. And so we're all certainly within a pretty close range we're hitting that nine mile turnaround but we're all hitting it hitting it at different points who's is right i don't know Uh, and likely they're actually all wrong they're all going to be just a little bit off and that variation and how far off they are might vary depending on the terrain if you're on a track they're going to be likely really off because that watch is checking in with the GPS every few seconds, perhaps, but you're making turns all the time on a 400 meter track 
And so it's essentially drawing straight lines between two data points collected over a matter of seconds while you're making a turn around a 400 meter track. And so inevitably it's going to be close, but it's still wrong. And so we have to remember and remind ourselves that these wearable technology tools, whether they're Garmin watches measuring pace and distance or whether they're wearables that might be measuring heart rate, heart rate variability, sleep cycles or whatever it might be are wrong. And we have to understand how they might be wrong and how that might affect the way we interpret and use that data. You know, another example of this is heart rate. The wrist-based heart rate tools are great because they're really convenient and easy and you don't have to wear that cumbersome chest strap. But the chest strap is significantly more accurate and there are significant issues with the wrist-based heart rate. Sometimes it can be correct, directionally correct, and maybe even consistent from one run to the next for a person. But there are times when it can be completely wrong. I've had athletes as a coach come and tell me, why is my heart rate 170 on a recovery run? And my question is, first question usually is, does it feel like it's 170? Do you feel like you're working that hard? And oftentimes the answer is no. And then my response is likely your data is wrong. Your heart rate, wrist-based heart rate tool, for whatever reason, is misreading your heart rate. And so I want you to calibrate that by simply doing a manual heart rate check periodically during your run to see how it correlates. So we can make sure that you aren't truly running at 170 beats per minute, that you are truly at a recovery effort. But we need to know, is that accurate or not? And in many cases, it's not. And we need to be aware fundamentally that these things can be wrong instead of assuming that it's right all the time and then therefore trying to make adjustments based on data that's inaccurate. In those cases, if somebody might think, well, my heart rate's 170 on a recovery run, I need to dramatically slow down in order to be in the right place. Well, not necessarily, because if that heart rate data is wrong and you're actually at the correct heart rate, then maybe you don't need to change a thing at all. And so we have to understand when the information, when and how and how much the information from these tools can be accurate. And I would say that generally the default should be that they're going to be wrong in some way. So yes, use it for directional information. Use it for as a reference point and as a tool. But it's not the end all and be all because it can be wrong. So first do is to understand the limitations of these tools. Another one I'll mention is the Aura Ring and the Whoop Bands. They trap sleep, track sleep cycles and things like that. Well, guess what? That is probably the least accurate information you're getting from wearable technology. Speed, distance, we've gotten pretty honed in. Those are generally pretty accurate. If you're wearing a chest-based heart rate strap, that's generally pretty accurate. If you're wearing a wrist-based heart rate, that's further from accurate. If you're wearing a wearable like an O-ring or a root band and you're looking at heart rate or heart rate variability, the studies tell us that's pretty accurate. But the sleep cycles they're giving you, the studies tell us that they're actually not necessarily accurate. And so depending on the data point too, we're going to have different levels of accuracy. And so again, understand the limitations 
of what you're wearing and do and be careful with how much credit you give to these wearable devices. So that's number one. Do understand the limitations. Number two, which will be my first don't here, is don't listen to the algorithms coming from these watches. We've already mentioned the fact that some of the data points can be off. Well, I can tell you that the algorithms from these devices, whether they be Garmin's training status indicator or Garmin's recovery time or even Garmin's VO2 max estimator, I wouldn't trust them. Don't listen to them. They are most definitely wrong. And I don't find them helpful in the least. And in fact, I wish Garmin would not install them as the default. You can uninstall them and you have to go to the instruction manual to figure that out. It's a little bit cumbersome to figure out, but you can un uninstall them. I've actually uninstalled my recovery indicator from Garmin because it was so annoying when it would tell me that I had to recover for three days after a basic workout. But I haven't yet uninstalled the training status indicator after one run, which will tell you training status unproductive or training status maintaining or training status productive which is seemingly very very rare to get and i'm just telling you that is completely worthless and inaccurate and i wish garmin as one example wouldn't have those as a default installation because those are algorithms created by humans built on data that isn't necessarily fully accurate and it's just not that helpful you are better off asking yourself the question based on what you know about the purpose of your day and how you felt on that day whether that was productive for you you asking yourself that question and following the gut instincts that come from answering that question to yourself is going to be more accurate than what garmin's telling you about your training status same thing with recovery if my watch tells me I need to take three, three days of recovery, what does that mean? Does that mean I take three days off? Does that mean the next day can be a recovery run and two days after that should look differently? Who knows? But the point is, it's not helpful. It's not useful. Don't listen to that information. And if you can, if it's, if it's a problem for you and that it becomes a distraction or you start to listen to it or it, or perhaps affects your ability to keep your mind in the right place from a training perspective when your watch tells you training status unproductive when you know in fact that it was productive if you if that's going to be an issue for you then go into the online manual for Garmin and disable that feature because it's not useful in any way and certainly not helpful if it's affecting your mental state and your mental approach to running and to be very clear, I love Garmin. I wear a Garmin 245 myself. I find it an amazing device. They are the best GPS watches out there from my perspective. But what they've done with some of their algorithms is frustrating and not at this point at a place where, to me, they are useful in any way. So do not, under any circumstances, trust the algorithms from these devices. And that's going to look a little bit different depending on what wearable you're using. But anything that's trying to interpret what you should do based on the underlying data, I would be very, very wary of. An example on the wearable 
heart rate and sleep tracking side from the Aura Ring would be that it would give me this daily readiness score. It would also give me a daily sleep score. And while those scores might have some directional value and in information, I never found them useful. I would always look at the underlying data for heart rate and heart rate variability in order to, to make my own interpretations and actions from the underlying data because those algorithms that determine that composite score for you aren't necessarily calibrated to you. So for Aura, with Aura, for example, as someone who, who wears that ring, it is often dinging me for my level of activity and it being, quote, too much for the average human as someone who's running, you know, normally 55 to potentially 70 miles a week. And sure, if most people were running that distance and perhaps ramping there in a way that wasn't smart or healthy or hadn't been doing it for 20 years like I have, then you should get dinged for that. That's going to create a readiness issue. But in my case, as someone who has sustained those volume levels for a long time, who knows what it does to my body, who balances stress and rest component of that by going easy on my easy days in the right ways, I shouldn't get dinged for that. So that in that way, the algorithm wasn't necessarily interpreting that piece of data for me and putting into that ready, readiness score in a way that was useful. And so largely I would ignore that composite score, but definitely would look at the underlying data of my heart rate, my heart rate variability from day to day to try to understand whether or not I needed to make some changes around my recovery. So be very wary of the algorithms and in general, ignore them. They're not useful. Use the underlying data and of course know that the limitations and the accuracy limitations of that underlying data. So that's my first don't. My second do, do learn how to use your tools. Do learn how to use your tools. And this may be self-explanatory, but I find it fascinating to me, those that aren't willing to spend just a little bit of time invested in how to properly use your tools. And I'm not just talking about interpreting data here. I'm actually just talking about just functionally using your tool. And if we want to use GPS watches as an example, that means things like learning how to use the lap function on your GPS watch in a way that's productive so that you can measure the time, the distance, the pace of a lap in a way that is actually helpful for your workout. As an example of that, for me as a Garmin user, I have two different screens in terms of the data that I might look at with three fields on each screen. One screen shows me total time, total distance, and instant pace. Now, I know that instant pace isn't that useful, right? But it can be directionally correct if you look at it over a few moments, perhaps. And then on the other screen, which I can toggle between, I have lap time, lap distance, and lap average pace. And so primarily when I'm doing workouts, I am using that lap screen in order to give myself information about how far I've gone, how fast I've gone on a given lap, especially if I have a measured interval, 
and of course the average pace on that lap interpreted by my Garmin. That is where I find my useful, most useful information. Another thing you can do with with your Garmin, as again as an example, that's the primary GPS tool I use, is you can upload your workouts into them. So if you're someone who struggles knowing what's next or how to calibrate your watch in a way that tells you what's next and the time and distances and things like you like that you need in the workout, you can go and you can upload that information into your watch so that it tells you what's coming in the workout so that you can execute it more easily perhaps. So that's another tool. The other thing is, you know, you can actually turn your GPS off. I've talked about this in race planning in that sometimes in urban environments like Chicago, I find it can be most helpful to turn off the GPS altogether and just simply manually split your watches at the mile marker so that you're getting real, real information about your pace versus something that could be affected by the GPS signal not properly connecting through the buildings and things like that. And so you need to be able to know how do you do that. And there's a whole host of functions that I haven't mentioned, but know how to use your tool. Learn to use it. And if you don't know how, then go watch YouTube videos, talk to your running friends, get that information because it is out there. Learn how to use your tools. That's number two, do. Number two, don't. Don't use pace on a measured course and track or track. Don't use pace on a measured course or track. What do I mean by that? You should not be looking at your pace per mile when you're running a measured interval, especially on a track. You should be looking at your lap times because you're on a measured course. You don't need the Garmin's interpretation of pace per mile looking at time and distance because you have distance that is your set variable and all you then need to know is how long it took you to cover that interval because from that information you can completely accurately interpret your pace because you got time and and you know your measured distance and so this is the other side to knowing how to use your tool and that's don't use pace when you're on a measured course and interval. It's not accurate. But what I can tell you is accurate is knowing exactly how long it should take you to cover that interval at the target paces you should be running. So if I'm on a track, for example, then I should know the 200 meter or the 400 meter or the 800 meter, depending on the interval you're running, splits that I should be covering the time it takes to cover those measured distances at the paces I'm trying to target. And then I can use the measured course to tell me how fast I'm going because that is 100% accurate. Measured course and you know the stopwatch on your watch is accurate. So don't use the interpolated pace from your Garmin in those situations. Use the lap time. 
because that's going to give you the most accurate, the 100% accurate reading of how fast you're running. And if you don't know what I mean when I'm telling you that, then learn, learn, figure it out. And this is why I appreciate growing up on the old Timex Ironman watches because that's what you had to do. All we had was a lap function. So you'd hit that lap when you came around on the track and you would know if I covered an interval, a 400 meter interval in 90 seconds that that was about six minutes per mile. Boom. The math doesn't lie. Measured track, measured time from your stopwatch equals your pace. And so number two don't is don't use pace on a measured course and track. Learn how to use that lap time. Okay, number three, do. Number three, do. Do prioritize how you feel versus the information you're seeing from your watch. Do prioritize how you feel versus the information you're seeing from your watch. This is one of to me, the biggest issues with running wearable technology is that it has created this paradigm where we become too focused on the data on our wrist versus dialed in to how our body is feeling. And the impact of that is so much bigger than I think we understand because what's happening when you're too focused and tense and keyed up watching your watch is that you're not focused on not only how you feel and just listening and being present in that, but also the practice of learning a given effort and how it should feel, but also at the same time trying to make that given effort or pace feel even easier. When you're staring at your watch every handful of seconds to try to check on your pace you're not listening to how you feel you're not calibrating that feeling with the pace you're supposed to be running and you're definitely not focused on calibrating your breathing and heart rate and making sure your body is relaxed in a way that will allow that pace and effort to feel even easier to find efficiency at that pace and effort which for most of us, if we're training for the marathon and half marathon, that is the game. That's what we're trying to accomplish when you run in distance. It's about efficiency and being able to stay relaxed at pace as much as it is learning how to press and suffer. And so when you're too focused on your watch and you're not listening to how you feel, then you're not also working on that ability to feel even smoother, easier, more relaxed at a given effort. You're also not listening to the cues of what your body is telling you. And that, believe me, and there's actually been studies in science on this, that our ability to calibrate effort is as good as a watch if we just learn to listen to it. If we just learn to listen to it. So you have all the tools inside of you without the watch. Now, certainly the watch is useful. It's a great calibrating tool. And I'll talk in a second about how I use the watch to calibrate, but it can get in the way of your ability to dial into how you're feeling, to be more efficient and relaxed at a given pace. And it certainly gets in the way of you interpreting 
what you might need in a workout in the specific, but even across a training cycle because we can, we become too much a slave to what the watch says and don't just listen. I'll give you an example from my recovery run today. Did a hard workout yesterday. Went out, had a short recovery run today, and my legs were tired. I'm doing a speed track right now, and so I'm starting to work some paces that I haven't worked in a while, and the muscles are feeling it. And yesterday we had a pretty intense cut down workout where I was running faster, honestly, than I've run in a long time. And so I stepped into my recovery run today knowing that it was going to be important to do to create blood flow, to create healing, motion is lotion, all of that, but that I couldn't be a slave to running a certain pace because it's a recovery run. In fact, I didn't look at my watch the entire time. I still haven't looked at how fast I ran because I just went out and I started really slowly and I listened to my body the whole way and let it dictate the pace on the day because the sole purpose for my recovery run today was not running a certain pace. It was just to create movement, to create blood flow, to promote healing so that I could go from that workout I did yesterday to a long run I have this weekend and not hurt myself. Wasn't about running a certain pace at all. And so I didn't actually even look at that. Still don't know what pace I ran and it doesn't matter. But what does matter is the fact that I listened to my body and I slowed down. I know that. I know I went slower than I normally do on recovery runs. And believe me, I already go pretty slow on my recovery runs. I know I went slower than that because I could feel it because I could feel that sluggishness from the workout and I had to listen to it and respond to it. So do learn how to listen to your body and prioritize how you feel. Number three, don't already kind of referenced this, but don't stare at your watch in a workout. Don't stare at your watch in a workout. Glance at it periodically. Check your splits periodically, not less than probably every 400 meters in most intervals, maybe every 200 meters if you're looking at a 400 meter interval. But do not stare at your watch. First of all, it's not accurate in the specific. In over short periods of time, it isn't accurate. It's more accurate over long periods of time as that starts to average out, which is one reason why I use average lap pace on that screen instead of instant pace or instant lap pace. So don't stare at it because it's just not that useful in the specific. These tools and devices are only helpful when you start to average that data over time, when you get many more connections to those satellites giving you information and data. So for example, I was doing, we were doing a cut down workout yesterday and had 3K, 2K, 1K intervals. And I remember in one of the intervals, we got out at a hard effort. We were supposed to cut down the pace as we went. And we got about 100 meters into one of the intervals and my training partner said, we're too fast. He was looking at his GPS watch. We were not on a track, so we didn't have any measured checkpoint on what our actual pace was at that time. And what I believe at the time was that just because we were so quick into that interval and coming off a recovery segment where we were actually just walking and lightly jogging, that it takes some time for the watch to recalibrate and to kind of give you useful information. And so 100 meters into that interval, 
the watch wasn't accurate. It wasn't telling us anything that was useful. I knew based on feel that the pace was about right. And so I stayed the course. He backed off a little bit and then we got around to the, to the completion of that interval and we were pretty much dead on what we wanted to do without making any adjustments really along the way. So you have to recognize that your watch is going to be inaccurate in the specific and in shorter periods of time. So don't stare at it. Listen to your body. Use the periodic checkpoint at a lap split or at a landmark on a loop you might be doing to check in on where you are, to give you one data point to help you calibrate with how you're feeling as to whether or not you should make adjustments to your pace, but don't sit there and stare at your watch and then bounce all over the place with your pace because that's what will happen. Your watch will bounce all over the place, then you'll be bouncing all over the place, and then you won't be, as I just mentioned, tuning into how you feel and really calibrating your effort versus staring at your watch and getting and reacting and overreacting to inaccurate information along the way. So number three, don't don't stare at your watch in workouts. Okay, we've got four more to go, but I wanted to take a break here and talk a little bit about my partnership with Care Of. They've been a great partner, a long-term partner of mine, and it's something I use every single day. You know, they are a monthly subscription service that gets you those vitamins, minerals, powders that you need to stay healthy as an athlete. I love it because it's easy. I just have that one single pack every day. I open it up, take what's in there based on what I've now added to that pack. After a couple of years of learning what I need and doing recent blood work, and so it's really simple. One note, by the way, people often ask me about those daily packs and the trash associated with that. I just wanted to mention that those are plant-based, compostable daily packs. And so so they do have environmentally conscious packaging, but it just makes it simple and easy. I have to simply pull out the next pack out of the box, and then I know I've taken what I need for that day. And then we move on. So I highly recommend you check them out. You can go on their site, takecareof.com, take the quiz, which will help you identify based on your goals, what you might want to include in those daily packs. And then you can also add and supplement other things based on what you might know that you could need based on maybe some blood work that you've done in the past. Then you assemble that pack and then it just comes to you. Monthly subscription service. You don't have to think about it. It makes it really easy and then you can stay up to date on all of those vitamins and supplements that you need to be your the best version of your running self. I love it. It's been an integral part of staying healthy as an athlete for me over the last couple of years. So would check them out. You can get 50% off your first order by using my offer code. Go to takecareof.com. Use the code ROGUE50. That's R-O-G-U-E-5-0 to get 50% off your first order. Again, that's takecareof.com, code ROGUE50 for 50% off your first order. I use them and I recommend you do too if this is something that you think you might need. So go check it out. All right, let's jump back into my conversation on the do's and don'ts of running technology. We're on to my fourth do. My fourth do is do upload your data to some sort of service like Strava or Garmin Connect. 
and review it post-workout and calibrate it back to how you felt in the workout. This is primarily how I believe you should be using this information rather than being too obsessed with your real-time data. I think it's best to let that watch, track the data, upload it to one of those services, and then go back and look at it and then reflect on and calibrate what were the outputs? So what did the data actually tell me versus how did I feel? So that you can then take your lessons from that workout and carry it to the next one. And maybe, for example, you felt like you're working a little bit too hard and the data confirmed that your pace was too hot. Or maybe it felt like you were working too hard and the data confirmed that your pace was right on track. And then you need to perhaps reevaluate the paces that you're using or maybe just assess whether or not that was one of those days that might be a tough day for whatever reason because of sleep, life, stress, whatever it may have gotten in the way of you feeling your best on that day. So that's the way I find it most useful. The other thing that's nice about uploading and tracking your data is that you then have that record. And I love the fact that my watch will automatically upload to Garmin Connect. That is automatically connected to Strava. So my runs are being logged whether I actively upload them or not. And then I can go back and look at my history too when I'm trying to assess what my, what my training needs might be for the next cycle or if there's a situation where I perhaps had an injury pop up, then I can go back and assess my data and see if there was something in that information that would point to why I got hurt. And so that's where I think it's really useful to have that history as well so that you could go back and look at things. You know, then there's also the positive things you can do with data that's been collected like that is you can scroll back through workouts when you're preparing for a race to remind yourself of the work that you've done and your readiness for the upcoming goal. You can also scroll back in the context of a year and take a look at that history and then make decisions about where you might need to get to next year, what might be the variables to play with in your next cycle. So there's a lot of useful things that you can take from that data, both in real time, right after uploading, and then also by looking back in that history that I think is important to recognize. So do upload your data to some sort of service and review it, not only post-workout, but periodically throughout your training and certainly before races to remind yourself of your readiness to go get it done. So that's my fourth do. My fourth don't is don't, on the other side of that coin, don't become overly obsessed with the data. Don't become overly obsessed with the data. Take your lessons from it and move on. As I mentioned, the data is only as good as your you're ready and willing to use it and interpret it. And that means that you have to look at it in the context of what it is, which is it's fallible information that can have issues. It isn't the end all and be all. It's not 100% accurate. And yes, it's useful. It's helpful in context. It can point you in the direction of lessons to be learned. But if you become overly obsessed with it, then I think it become it can become destructive. So what could that look like? Well, I already referenced a little bit this example of becoming overly obsessed with pace on easy days or recovery days, for example, is one way that this could become destructive, where you're 
too concerned or your ego becomes too tied to maintaining a certain pace on your recovery days because you think that somehow points to your fitness level at the time when, as I mentioned, the reality of those easy days is that it is about keeping them easy. It's not necessarily about running a certain pace. It's about staying in that aerobic capacity development zone for the easy days, or it's about truly just blood flow via movement on those recovery days. And so those are days where in many times I would love to tell people not to wear a watch, but certainly like I did today, don't look at the watch on those recovery days. Listen to your body. Don't become overly obsessed with that data during the run or on the back end, because I know we all want those numbers to show up on the public forums in certain ways. But when we, we let that dictate what that does for our runs and perhaps pulls us out of the purpose of those days so that they become junk miles instead of being productive purpose-driven miles, then we start to have a problem. Another way I could see this manifesting, especially with some of the wearable technologies like Whoop and Aura, is if you become so obsessed with the data that you're checking it all the time and then it starts to affect your behavior. With the Aura Ring, for example, because it is tracking sleep and giving you the sleep score and this readiness score, I could see that being a challenge for some people if they become overly obsessed with that data to the point where they might have trouble sleeping because they're worried about getting a certain sleep score. And then that could manifest into staying awake, thinking about what your score might be and therefore not getting as good of sleep. So I think that's an area where some of these wearables are dangerous potentially. And for certain people, certain personalities, or for those that just simply get wrapped up into what that's telling you, then it can become destructive. And there's no shame in that or harm in that if that's become you or if you've had windows where that's been you because it's easy enough for it to happen with this information flowing our way but i would just caution you to be very careful with that and also if you know that might be your personality then you might be very choosy about which tools you decide to use i've told this to anybody who's asked me about using the aura ring if i would recommend it and the answer is Yes, I would recommend it if you can use the data in context, but I wouldn't recommend it for somebody who might become overly obsessed with that information, which could then snowball and affect their sleep. So be careful about that point. Don't become overly obsessed with the data. Okay, number five, do. Number five, do with our running wearables and technology is do keep your goals front and center. Do keep your goals front and center. I think sometimes there's a tendency or risk for the data to become the goal, for out, the outputs to become the thing that drives you so that you're looking too much for perfection on paces every day, perhaps perfection in workouts, and that starts to miss the point. Again. These are tools that are helping point you in the right direction of your goals. And the outputs from the data shouldn't take over those goals. They should just help support and build and lift you towards those goals. Truly be tools rather than become the end themselves. And so be very careful about the place 
that this data holds in the hierarchy of what you believe is important in your training. You want to make sure that your goals are front and center. What you're trying to accomplish is the main thing, whether that be to run a certain distance or hit a PR in a race or run a certain time or run further than you've ever run. Whatever that goal is, make sure that stays your true north. Your purpose associated with that stays your true north and you don't let the data and or what you're seeing from your watch or wearable start to become the goal itself or the end itself because that will distract you from the true purpose of what you're trying to accomplish. It will also distract you from the purpose of what you're trying to accomplish in a given run or workout. And so true north is goals and the purpose for that goals. Then as we talked about in so many as we've talked about in so many episodes, then you assemble your training based on those goals, based on the levers you need to pull in order to be the best version of yourself. And then you build a training schedule around that that works from a macro perspective down to a micro perspective of what you do on a given day and what purpose you're trying to achieve on each of those days. All of that fundamental stuff from goals down to action plan in your training can happen and should happen independent of what your watch is telling you. And then the watch or wearable becomes the tool that helps support you, that helps tell you whether or not you're achieving the purpose of your day, that helps give you some biofeedback along the way so that you are calibrating your effort with where you should be in your efforts in training. It becomes the supportive element and information couched in the fact that it is a fallible device so that you have proper perspective on how to use that information and then that all then ports continues to point you and support you in the path to achieving your goals so do make sure that your goals are the true north and the outputs on your watch don't become the end goal in of in and of themselves because that's when truly the tail will be wagging the dog and your priorities will shift in a way that will likely cause you not to get the goals that you want so that's my final do do keep your goals front and center the data and the tools are just supporting you in that and number five don't the last don't here which is a related point but what I want to emphasize to finish things off is don't do it for Strava. Don't do it for Strava. Love Strava. I use it, upload my data there every day. Nothing wrong with the tool and the platform. I think it's a great community environment for running, for cycling, and I've got no issues with it. I think some of the things on there, the King of the Mountains and the Queen of the Mountain and the local legend, all that stuff is fun and it makes our sport more interesting in many ways. The challenges, the badges, all those things are good things where it can become destructive. And by the way, those are all things that are fine to play with, to have fun with, to go chase it from time to time. But don't forget, as I just said, your true north, your bigger goals, and they should not be, they should not be, from my perspective, Strava outputs or for people to have a certain perception about you as an athlete because of what you're showing on Strava. That is when it can become unproductive or at least not focused in a way that's going to allow you to reach your true potential. So don't do it for Strava, which means don't worry about what your watch is going to upload to Strava in a way that starts to change your behavior towards that ultimate true north 
of your big goals because that's when you start to get off the rails and you're not necessarily going to be doing the things that are going to point you in that direction. And those are things like going too fast on workouts versus what, what's prescribed, going too fast on easy days versus what's prescribed, chasing that perception of you online as an athlete is not how you're going to reach your ultimate goals in your sport in this sport. So yes, use Strava, assuming you can disconnect your ego from it, use it as a tool, use it as something that helps you track what you've been doing over time, use it as a way to connect to others that are in our community, which is amazing and valuable, but don't, don't do it for Strava. Your purpose in running is not to present a certain picture on Strava. That's when you start to lose your path to that true north, which is to be your best running self. And so that's my final don't. Don't do it for Strava. I love my wearables. I love my Garmin. The technology we have in the sport is now amazing, but we have to be more cautious about how we use it. So I hope I hope this journey down these 10 do's and don'ts was helpful for you and maybe put a mirror up for you on some things that you might need to tweak as it relates to your relationship with your technology. And otherwise, I want you to go out there and get the work done. By the way, play with it sometime. Go for an easy run without your watch and just see what happens. Do a workout without your watch just by purely by feel. I can tell you, and it's, a, it's an amazing, liberating experience that we should all do periodically because it will change your relationship with that watch. So that'll be my final point as we wrap this episode. As a reminder, you can go to takecareof.com and use code ROGUE50 for 50% off your order. That's R-O-G-U-E-5-0 for 50% off your first order at careof. So go do that. Then you can also check us out at roguerunning.com. We actually still have She Squad open, which is our women's virtual group. If you're interested in that, you can also join us in person in Austin or Dallas. If you're interested in that, you can find that info at roguerunning.com. You can also follow us on social media at Rogue Running on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Otherwise, this is Chris signing off. I'll talk to you guys next week.